Well, good evening, Grace DC. Thank you for responding. <laughs> it really is a joy uh, and a privilege to be here serving as a pastor in this network of churches and to be here tonight with you to worship. Thank you to the praise team for that last song, uh, The Lord Undid Me as we were singing. I didn't know if I'd be able to get myself back together again to get back up here and preach. I want to talk to you tonight on this subject, really, question, what's in a name? What's in a name? You heard the text read just a few moments ago, and here's the point of this message that I want to give to you tonight. It is that God comes to us. He comes to us in grace, declaring to us his powerful name and expressing for us his eternal love and commitment. God comes to us in grace, declaring to us his powerful name and expressing his eternal love and commitment to his people. Would you pray with me? Yes, Lord, we do declare as we sang tonight, Jesus, Lamb of God, is worthy. The one who was slain for us, who is high and lifted up. And we declare that all the world will indeed praise that great name. And tonight, Lord, would you be pleased to meet us where we are through the preaching of your word, and let us know that there is indeed power in the name of Jesus. Would you meet us tonight and would you give us what we need? Give us the faith we need, the encouragement we need, or even the correction that we need to become people who live not for the sake of our own name, but for the sake of the one who lived and died and rose again, our King, Jesus the Christ. Amen. In the Word of God, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 22 and verse 1, the Bible says, a, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Let's tell you about a man named Jason Brown. Jason Brown is a big man, a big in physical stature and girth. He was first drafted in 2005 to play in the NFL by the Baltimore Ravens and then went to play uh, seven years or so for the St. Louis, at the time, St. Louis Rams. And in 2012, he was one of the best centers in the entire NFL. He was in the middle of a five-year, $37 million contract. And that year, uh, Jason decided it was time for him to walk away from the NFL, to hang up his cleats, and do something else. He said his agent said to him, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. And Jason looked at his agent and he said, no, I'm not. No, I am not. 
Now, I might try to say that his agent should have been more understanding of Jason's position. But truth be told, I think I'd struggle myself to walk away from a job that I was good at, that I liked, that I was among the best in the world at, and getting paid $37 million. And what was it that Jason decided was so worth giving up his $37 million NFL contract? Giving up all of that cash and devoting himself to something else? What was it? Farming. I kid you not, farming. Now, I, I might understand if he had kind of grown up on a farm and had the nostalgia of being back home out in the fields and, and taking care of the, of the earth and raising cattle and whatever else, but he had never been on a farm in his life. He decided to go and buy a thousand acres of farmland in Franklin County, North Carolina. Well, how did he learn to farm? Right, the way everybody learns everything these days, he said, YouTube videos on the internet. <laughs> but the question, of course, is why? Why would he do that? What, what in the world did he do that for? He, he left the NFL life to, to start what he calls First Fruits Farm. The issue was for him that North Carolina's food insecurity rate was higher than the national average, and he wanted to make a dent in that. That is, the, the, the food insecurity rate, the number of people who did not know where their next meal was coming from was higher in his state than, uh, than other places, and he wanted to make a dent in that. And he donates the first fruits of every harvest to local food banks. And, and only after two years of farming, he donated more than 10,000 pounds of cucumbers and 100,000 pounds of sweet potatoes to local pantries. And, and in his personal statement on his website, he says, everyone's life has a purpose, and the only way to know that purpose is through applying God's heavenly wisdom in our lives and having a covenant relationship with our Creator, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a name that is above every name. And when we make that good confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, we begin to want to do things to live life for the sake of that name, for the glory of that name. This is what Jason Brown is doing in North Carolina. The reputation that he desires is whether when people meet him, he said, they encounter the love and the grace of God. He says to a reporter, he said, love is the most wonderful currency you can give anyone. And when we look at the text that was read this evening, the, what we find is this man named Moses who is in process. He's going to go in God's name into Egypt. And he is to deliver God's people who are enslaved in Egypt that, so that they would see and experience God's love and his grace and his power extended to them so that they would come to realize that there is no one like the Lord, that the name of the Lord is to be praised. And, and Moses is finding out that because of who the Lord is, when his call comes, your direction can change 180 degrees. 
And so we see in these three verses, Moses express his concern in verse 13, and then we see God respond to him in clarity in verse 14, and then express his commitment in verse number 15. And that's the three points I want to share with you tonight in this passage, concern, clarity, and commitment. So let me situate us in the book of Exodus. Uh, we are finding ourselves with Moses at a burning bush. Moses had been living in the land called Midian with his father-in-law Jethro and his wife Zipporah for, for decades. He had been a prince in Egypt, but now he's a shepherd in Midian. And one day as he is out shepherding the flock uh, and has led them to the west side of the wilderness to this place called the Mount of Horeb, and the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a flame of fire from the burning bush. And when Moses turned to see why the bush was burning and wasn't being uh, consumed by the fire, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. God told him, remove the sandals from your feet because the ground on which you are standing is holy. The Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry, and so now go. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. Lead my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And just a few verses before our text, in verse number 11, Moses asks the Lord a question. He says, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. There is a dialogue going on here. And the pattern of this dialogue in the book of Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4 where this dialogue is taking place, we find this pattern. God keeps saying to Moses, go. And Moses keeps saying to God, I don't want to. Moses is not like Jason Brown at this point. He's not saying, I'm willing to give up what I'm comfortable with for what you have called me to. And Moses, eventually, eventually, in chapter 4, verse 13, Moses will give up. He will give up making excuses about why he shouldn't go. He will finally fess up in verse 13 of chapter 4 when he says, Oh, my Lord, please send somebody else. I'm going to make this point because it's important, and I pray that we never, ever forget it. The Word of God, the Bible, never presents us with this picture of perfect people, these super saints, these holier-than-thou folks who do not struggle to do what God has called and told them to do. You see, a lot of times we can be burdened, we can carry this burden of guilt because we struggle to do what God calls us to do in his word. God is not joking when he says to obey in his word. He's not joking around when he commands us to trust him, but that doesn't mean we will not struggle to do it. Realize that God knows he knows that his people will struggle to follow and obey him even after they put their faith and trust in him. 
Here is the differentiator, though. Understand, the place of faith, when we talk about faith, the place of faith isn't no longer struggling to do what God says. The place of faith is no longer, you know, I no longer have this struggle with God. It's what God is calling me to do. The, the place of faith is actually seeing the Lord Jesus Christ begin to change your desires, to start to change your desires so that there actually is a struggle. In fact, in fact, you can say, Lord, I want to do this, but I'm afraid of what it will mean. I want to do this, Lord, but I'm afraid it, it, it'll, I'll have to give up too much. Do you understand? Struggling to obey God can actually be a sign of faith. Lord, I want to, but then I don't want to because I know what it'll cost. I'm afraid of what it means if I do what you said. The struggle and the wrestling can indeed be a sign that there is real faith there. So it's no surprise that Moses has a concern, even though God said to him in verse 12, I will be with you. This is going to be the sign for you, he said, Moses, that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God here on this mountain. Moses, you got to trust me that this is what's going to happen. And even with this, Moses is concerned. He says in verse 13, I'm, I'm about to go to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, but they're going to ask me, what's his name? What do I tell them? You know what's behind that question he's asking? In that culture, in that ancient Near Eastern culture, gods had names. The people named their gods based on what the god had authority over. In Egypt, Ra was the word for sun, and so Ra was the god of the, the sun who created life on earth. Uh, the, the word in Egyptian Horus means uh, far above or high above, and so Horus was the god of the sky symbolized uh, by, a, by a bird. And even when Israel comes out in, and goes into the promised land, the land of Canaan, they would be met with the same kinds of things. Uh, uh, the Canaanite god Dagon, who was the god of grain, and so he's the god of the earth. Uh, his uh, Shemis, the uh, name for sun, so he's the god of the sun. And so Moses says to the Lord, God, what's your name? What's your name? Here the people of Israel have been living in Egypt for 400 years. They have become quite familiar with and likely influenced by the gods of Egypt while their God has been silent. The concern of Moses' question is, what's your name, God? Because they'll want to know what you have authority over. Your name is going to tell us about your attributes. Your name is going to tell us whether you are bigger and badder than the gods of Egypt. It's like that scene in the Disney movie Lion King. That's what happens if you have four children growing up and your whole life is spent watching Disney movies. So a lot of sermon uh, uh, examples come from Disney. So you've seen that movie, you might remember that time when little lion cubs, Simba and Nala, 
They escape uh, their guardian bird, Zazu, and they, they run into uh, the elephant graveyard, the land of the shadows, and they are trapped in there by the hyenas who are about to eat them, and Simba, the little male lion cub, figures I'm going to man up right now. I'm going to try to give out this roar and scare these hyenas away, and, you know, he, he goes and he roars. He goes, Right, and the hyenas bust out laughing, and they say, do it again, do it again. And then the next time Simba opens his mouth, you hear this big old roar. Daddy Mufasa is behind him. Daddy Mufasa has showed up, and he roars the big old man lion roar, and the hyenas get the fear of God in them, and they go running. Look, that's what Moses is asking there. He said, Lord, they want to know who's this God who says he's behind us. We feel small up against the Egyptians and their gods. Their gods are obviously strong because we are in slavery. Listen, please. This this concern is still with us today. This concern meets us in the here and now, right where we are today. See, we might not walk around having little named gods uh, around us, but we still struggle to believe the Lord because we struggle to believe that he is stronger than the forces that seem to run our lives. We struggle... We struggle because evil and, and, and depravity and lack and need, it's real. It's tangible. We see it on display every day. We see oppression on display in the world around us and sometimes directly upon us. We experience the impact that evil has on our lives and in people and in structures and in systems, and it can wear us down, and we struggle to believe that God is actually bigger and badder and better and stronger than all of it. It is tangible, and our fight is God. What is your name? What is your name? Do you have a name that is more powerful than all of the stuff that I'm dealing with? Do you have a name that is stronger than the things that are weighing me down? God responds to Moses. He responds to Moses' concern by bringing clarity into this situation. Moses wants to know God's name because he wants to be able to explain to the people what the God of their fathers has authority over. But God says to Moses in verse 14, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. What's in a name? What's in that name? I am. I mean, really, honestly, does that sound like clarity to you? Does that sound like, like what God ever had the name I am? Here's the clarity God is giving. What he is saying is, listen, Moses, 
I'm too majestic for y'all to try to put me in some kind of a box. Moses, I'm too glorious for y'all to try to limit the scope of my authority to some particular place or some particular aspect of life. Moses, I'm more powerful than you all can imagine. What do I have authority over, Moses? I have authority over everything and over everyone and over every place. I am Lord. His answer to Moses points to his power to do just what he says he will do. If you keep on reading in the book of Exodus, you will eventually get to these plagues that God sends on the Egyptians. Uh, you'll be get to these ten plagues. These plagues are how God asserts his authority over all the false gods of Egypt and ultimately over Pharaoh himself who claims divine authority. But here's what's mind-blowing. Here's what blows my mind, right, as I read through the pages of Scripture. Here's what is amazing is that when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, do you know what he does? Jesus makes the exact same claim to authority that we find right here in Exodus chapter 3. When Jesus comes on the scene and in the 8th chapter of John, the, the leaders of the people of Israel accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed. They are beside themselves in anger and indignation when Jesus has the audacity to say to them, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone, if anyone, Jesus says in John 8, 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And then they say to him, listen, now we know you got a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Just who do you think you are, Jesus? Jesus says in John 8, 56 and 58, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And he's not making a grammatical error there. Jesus is saying, listen, he's not saying, listen, I'm just some regular old prophet. Jesus is saying, as he says in John 6 and 48, I am the bread of life. In 8.12, I am the light of the world. He says in 8.24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In 10.7, I am the door. In John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. In 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. I am, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. I am the same God who declared and revealed himself to Moses in that burning bush on Mount Horeb. This is me. I am that Lord who has all power and authority. I am the one who is full of majesty. I am the one who is worthy of praise. I am the one with a name that is above every other name. And get this whether it is in the context of Exodus 3 in the Old Testament or what I was just quoting from the New Testament passages in the Gospel of John, the purpose of this self-disclosure of, disclosure of God is so that those who call on his name will have confidence and full assurance of who he is and who they are in him. There is a purpose of God saying, I am who I am. 
There's a purpose in Jesus saying, I am he. And it's not some arbitrary purpose. It is so that if you call on his name, if you belong to him, that you will have full confidence and assurance, not only of who he is, but of who you are in him. That you will have full confidence and assurance that I am a son or a daughter of God. That I am not forsaken. I can never be forsaken. God is saying, I know evil is real, Moses. I know oppression and the slavery is real. I know the struggle is real. I know the despair is real, but I'm real too. I'm real too, and I'm badder than all of it. This is not just about head knowledge. It's not a confession of the mind without a commitment of the heart. When the Lord says to Moses in verse 14, I am has sent me to you, it is so they will have the full assurance that their God is God. And then, in an amazing, amazing declaration of love and grace, after giving this clarity, he commits himself to them in verse 15. Uh, we talk about we talk about oftentimes in the church and in the Christian faith about our committing ourselves to God, of our commitment to the Lord. But, but, but that commitment has got to be based on a, a, a first commitment, God's commitment to his people. He goes even further in verse 15. He says, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And if you look in your Bible paper or your Bible app, you will likely see that word Lord in four capital letters. That is the, the, the name of the Lord and its proper pronunciation is likely Yahweh derived from the same verb in verse 14 where God declares himself to be I am. And the personal name of God is so revealed, revered that it was not pronounced. I remember when I was learning Hebrew and I was in Seminary, even we, we would come across that, that, that name. We would just use, we would say Adonai, which just means Lord. What I want us to see here in this is the intimacy and the commitment, not simply that the Lord is calling for from his people, but the commitment he is making to them. Well, what do I mean? This is him moving towards them. He says, this is my name forever. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is my covenantal name. This is thy name for my people for all generations, not just y'all. It's the name, my name for my people forever, from generation to generation to generation. I am your Lord. I'm the one who cannot be boxed in. I'm the one who has power and authority over the entire creation, and I'm yours forever. Do we really get, do we really grasp the implications of what happens when we turn to the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ? Has it really, really, really sunk deep down into the depths of your heart? Do we really grasp the implications of God revealing himself to us in Jesus Christ and committing himself to us forever? 
Listen, it means that we become people who live for the praise of his name. It means we become people who call on his name. It means we become people who realize that we can call on his name in any and every circumstance. And he's never ever too busy to hear our cry. He's never too occupied with somebody else or something else that's more important than hearing the cries of his people. It's like David says in the 116th Psalm when he says, I love the Lord. Why do you love the Lord David because he heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he inclined his ear to me therefore I'll call on him as long as I live we become people who trust the name of the Lord we become people who begin to understand that there's power in the name of Jesus And because these things are true, even though we struggle, even though we begin more and more, what we we begin to do more and more is live out of this trust in the powerful name of our Lord. Let me ask you this. Have you called on the name of the Lord Jesus? Have you called on the name of the Lord? Have you realized, as the scripture says to us in the book of Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved? If you have, listen, let me make it personal. Where is he calling you to trust in his name even more? Where is the place of of struggle? Where is your fight tonight? Where is the place you are fighting to trust the name of the Lord in your life? Where is the place of struggle or maybe even that compartment of yourself where you're saying, Lord, I can't trust you in this. It's too hard. I'm not going to give it up to you because it's too frightening for me. I'm afraid of what it might cost me relationally. I'm afraid of what it might cost me in terms of my image. I'm afraid of what it might cost me. Where is the Lord our God calling you to confess your struggle? To put your trust in his name. To believe that he's strong enough. To believe that he is loving enough, to believe that he is gracious and kind enough, to believe that he is patient and long-suffering enough to, to meet you right there and that he is Lord even over that struggle. Struggle is real. Concerns are real. But so is the powerful name of the Lord Jesus. So is the power of the name of the Lord Jesus. I encourage you tonight. Listen, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and he delights to hear us confess the struggle. He delights to know that we want to be honest before him and confess our need, our doubts, and our discouragements that he might display his great power in our lives. Confess it. Don't run from it. Invite him and let him meet you right where you are that you might become even more sure 
that there's power in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, what's in a name? Your great name. Your great name is the one that has all rule and authority, majesty and might. And you have all of the love much more than we can fathom. Would you, in your mercy, wash over us with your love, that we would be people who are quick to confess our struggles and our doubts, and that we would see our confidence and our trust in you grow as you exercise your great love and kindness and authority over us. In Christ's name, amen.